Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Do you love a place in a way that almost defines who you are? Some place you live, but also invest more of yourself in a place that becomes part of your identity. And does that place love you back? Today, we'll talk with the author of a book that takes a look at how those of us in the Rust Belt contend with the sometimes unrequited love we have for the cities where we live. And we'll want to hear from you. Do you love Detroit? And does it love you back? It's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. If I tell you to think of a place, a city maybe, that you love, what comes to mind? Easy question for us here in Detroit, right? We wear our affinity for this place like a badge, and we defend it fiercely to anyone who would dare question its greatness. And that's kind of true for some other places here in the Midwest, in the Rust Belt, that vestige of industrial strength that defines so much of our self-consciousness in this region. In the simplest terms, these are places where our collective victimhood from the fall of unions, globalization, and a contracting middle class sometimes builds that affinity, the way a losing team's players or fans will often be just as diehard as a perennial winner's. And of course, we know a lot about that too here in the city of Detroit. But as much as we love Detroit, and as much as Midwesterners love the Midwest, do these places really love us back? I mean, there are some deep scars that all of us bear from life in this city. The poverty, the violence, incarceration, fractured families, and of course, the profound history of racism and structural inequality. And so those challenges raise questions for people like us. How do we survive places that don't love us back in the way that we want them to. Places that don't offer us enough money or healthcare or economic opportunities, public infrastructure or safety. The things that we need and the things that we demand. And how do we maintain our love for places like Detroit when its insufficiencies leave so many people wanting? And even more, how do we love places like Detroit when the people who struggle with its realities are the ones who end up hurting us? There's a new book called Rust Belt Femme that unpacks this love, this affinity we have for old industrial places like Detroit, and asks some very tough questions about how that love gets shown back to us or doesn't. 
And I'm really glad to welcome its author, Rachel Angelie, to the show. Rachel, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here, and that was that was such a beautiful intro. So I'm oh, excited to oh, see where the conversation goes. <laughs> I think I think I speak for a lot of people in this city when I say I can identify really strongly with a lot of the things you're talking about uh, in this book. Um, so let, let's start here. You grew up uh, poor in Ohio, but. Mm -hmm. Now you're a published writer and you've got a PhD. Some people would say you're firmly outside of the poverty and the other kinds of struggles that we have here uh, as children of the Midwest. But you say you still carry your childhood with you in a lot of ways. Uh, explain how you still feel like you have to straddle various classes and various distinctions because of where you're from. Yeah. So there's this term I, I would hear a lot when I, um, you know, I, I left Cleveland when I was 18, went to Chicago for, for college and then just kept kept on staying in school. I went to grad school in Minneapolis, got a Ph.D. And I would hear people talk about class transitioners, you know, when they found out that I grew up grew up without a lot of money um, with a single mom. Uh, I would I would hear that term a lot. And then uh, and then I read somewhere that uh, actually uh, or maybe it was actually a therapist. I either read it or a therapist uh, <laughs> helped me with the term um, class straddler uh, because this idea that somehow we sort of move beyond uh, poverty or trauma or the place that we're from um, doesn't feel realistic when, especially in the case of uh, folks who experience uh, complex trauma, complex post-traumatic stress disorder is, is something that I have uh, was diagnosed with. Um, it's, it, it stays with us, right? We, we, um, not only carry it with us sort of in our bodies when we, whether we actually have flashbacks or triggers or things sort of like that, but also, of course, we still have our families who, who often don't escape those same conditions. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, there was never, as I say in the book, there's sort of never not a foot of mine in that sort of poor community that I grew up in, um, particularly because, you know, my, my mom still lives pretty, pretty similarly to how we did during some tough times. And, um, and also, uh, I'll just I'll just give a little sort of uh, context for the state of uh, folks with PhDs these days. Um, I also didn't sort of make it in a sort of pull yourself up by your bootstrap story because there's not a lot of secure academic positions. So mm -hmm. um, uh, even though I sort of culturally look as though I've I've surpassed my my sort of quote white trash background. Um, I'm actually still in very sort of precarious employment position um, as an adjunct professor and and writer, um, sort of cobbling to get things together like like so many of us, um, I think, in, in the millennial generation in particular, but which, of course, has always been the case for, for folks under capitalism um, trying to survive. Yeah, yeah. And so talk about the ways in which you, I guess, still maintain... Maybe the armor is the right word that um, uh, that you you built up from from growing up where you did and the way you did, and I guess how that identifies you in in different spaces. I mean, I I, I feel like sometimes people can smell that on us or see it on us in a way mm -hmm. that that maybe we're not always even aware. But 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 I I, I would love to hear you talk about how how that positions you in the world uh, that you live in now. Yeah. Um, 
I, there's there's a couple ways I could answer that question, and one, um, since so much of my book uh, is is about gender and the way that uh, my sort of class background and also the, the sort of actual location of the Rust Belt uh, sort of shaped my gender identity as a queer femme person. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, a very sort of simple and seemingly shallow answer to that question is that uh, I'm covered in tattoos. I get acrylic nails. I um, have had people tell me that I don't dress appropriately to teach classes in, <laughs> in these ways that feel very class and feel also, to be honest, now that I've lived in um, other parts of the Midwest that aren't the Rust Belt and also on the East Coast. Um, kind of also feels like, I don't know, there's something very Cleveland and Ohio about the way that I feel like I sort of feel aesthetically. And I live here again now after I was, I left Cleveland for 18 years and then I moved back in 2020. And being back here, I'm like, oh yeah, this is where I fit. So some of that is just like a shallow aesthetic answer. Um, and then I, I think the other part about sort of this notion of, of armor, um, this this question that I, I sort of have always sort of felt plagued by by um by the time I sort of had con- like sort of class consciousness and realized like oh I you know my my mom worked so hard and still never you know multiple jobs working all the time tried so hard to to keep us afloat and even and often it, that wasn't enough and realizing that that was sort of a result of these of these systems of of, of capitalism and neglect of the state and all of these things. Um, and, and I was always, but there was so much uh, love and community and caretaking that happened in uh, in the, this community where I grew up in with a lot of poor people who were really struggling, but also showing so much community, so much resilience. And I've always been sort of desperate as an adult to figure out how do we how do we get to caring about each other in ways without having to first suffer extreme oppression and extreme scarcity, mm-hmm. you know, can we tap into to caretaking and, and community, um, this, you know, vague, ambiguous concept? Can we, can we find that without getting into really dire circumstances first? Um, and, you know, I think the pandemic has, has actually opened the door to a lot of that because, you know, people of all sort of classes are, are, are suffering sort of in, um, uh, in, in, in pretty profound ways. So I think we found our way into caretaking, but, but I guess the, to take it to that, that notion of armor, it's like, um, you, you have, you have to, uh, there is this sense of resilience that I think gets, gets romanticized. And that's sort of what I'm trying to, trying to get to in this rambly, rambly response is that, um, uh, resilience is great, but resilience means that you've been you've been harmed. That you know, you're, suffered, you're resilient. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah. yeah. So, so let's talk just a little about the reason that people who grew up where you did, people who grew up where I did here in Detroit, and I should say reasons, um, that life is so difficult. Uh, I mean, there's a, an historic narrative here that's important, but there's also um, a, 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 a modern tension that I think um, that for, for people who, who don't grow up in those places, it, it, it's, not, it's not terribly familiar. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who don't quite understand what it is you're talking about in, in a book like this because they didn't experience. So, so spend a little time talking about what that suffering looks like and why it persists. Yeah, I mean, well, certainly we can start with 
colonization of the so-called United States, of course. You know, there's, <laughs> there's been oppression since, since the, the colonization of this land. And then, of course, the, the, um, you know, the, the enslavement of, of, of black people that, of course, led to uh, more extreme uh, violence and oppression. And, um, and then the, you know, the, the implementation of, of capitalism and this, and this current state that we live under that, uh, harms, harms people of, of all races and, um, and, and creates these, these systems where, where people, uh, ex- experience these levels of, of poverty where there are haves and have nots. Of course, I think that's a pretty, pretty common under, understanding narrative, even if some people want to, um, deny it. But the way that I think that that sort of shows up uniquely in, in the Rust Belt, um, is through this very sort of visceral, um, it's, it's so, pr- the in, in, industry is so present in, in this region. And I think both, you know, I've of course have visited Detroit a number of times and, and feel very similarly when I'm, when I'm there, um, when you, when you witness on a sort of daily basis, literal empty factories, you know, there's, there's all this sort of, uh, you know, people sort of romanticize the ruins of, of falling apart mills and industry, you know, big, mm-hmm. big industry. And, and it's, it's, I, I think I've internalized that too. There is something beautiful about it, but we also, we also saw it in a ways, in ways that we knew it, it's sort of impossible not to know somebody who was impacted by the decline of those industries. So for example, my, my grandfather was um, laid off, was a steel, steel worker and was laid off and we would pass this, you know, dying giant brick building that, that he used to work in um, on my way to school. And just just sort of knowing that, knowing people who are impacted, knowing people who suffered the loss of, of those jobs um, with the declines of unions. And um, yeah, so I think, I think we just feel it more here mm-hmm. in a particular way. Um, and then I also, you know, so I, I had this unique situation where I grew up in, in what felt like a very rural area, but it was right on the edges of suburbs and then, and then Cleveland. So I could get to Cleveland in 20, 25 minutes, but I still live next to farmlands and, mm-hmm. you know, big, felt very rural. So there's also this way in which I think that parts of um, the Midwest and Rust Belt, like you're, you're, you're right near the sort of falling apart cities, but then also you can sort of experience this, um, this, this rural kind of kind of poverty or, or class um, class oppression in particular ways too that uh, also felt distinct and um, hmm. yeah so I don't know if that answers directly but I but I think I'm guessing that the, the Detroit folks listening will probably uh, recognize what I'm saying with that with that feeling yes yes absolutely I'm talking with Rachel Ann Jolie, a writer and the author of Rust Belt Film, which was a winner of the Independent Publisher Book Award in LGBTQ nonfiction and an NPR favorite book of 2020. We're talking about love, the love we have for the place we live or the place we're from. And here in Detroit and here in the Midwest, how that love sometimes doesn't get reflected back in quite the ways we want or the ways that we need. We want to hear from you uh, during this conversation, especially uh, what are your most important identities and how wrapped up are they in the idea of being a Detroiter or a Metro Detroiter or a Michigander? How has your Midwestern upbringing shaped your life and who you are? And if you love Detroit, if you love this region, do you feel like it loves you back? Do you feel as though uh, 
it's, it provides for you all of the things that you would expect from a city that you were born in or, or live in. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Uh, you can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Uh, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation uh, uh, that way. Uh, I want to read a Twitter comment uh, to begin here and, and have you react to it. Big Neil on Twitter says, I was born and raised on the west side and I love Detroit. The Air Force took me away, but I returned. I had to leave for better schools because I have school-aged kids. If all the schools were top-notch, I'd still be there, but my kids are my number one priority. There's, there's something in, uh, in his comment that I think is just so common uh, in the relationship that so many of us have with cities like Detroit. He's talking about things that, that I certainly have had to think about and talk about and make choices around uh, for a really long time. And there's something about the idea of leaving, um, which most of us have at some point in our lives, leaving the place that we're from behind, um, that comes with a, uh, uh, a sense of guilt. I mean, there's a sense of lost responsibility, I guess, when we, when we go away. And, and there's almost an apologetic tone in, in Big Neo's tweet uh, about prioritizing his kids. Um, rather than prioritizing his love for the city. And I, I, I wonder if that's something you feel uh, and, and, and how, you, how you contend with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I definitely struggled with guilt uh, when, I, when I left and when I was gone those 18 years, uh, largely for, for not being closer to my mom, which I think is what brought me back more than Cleveland itself. But that said, um, there was, there really was a sense, even, even in the cities I really loved, I lived in Minneapolis. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't, no offense to any East coasters listening, but I did not love Boston as much when I lived there, but um, I lived <laughs> in Chicago really, somehow. yeah, <laughs> um, it's a little different vibe than, than the Midwest. Um, but I also loved Chicago when I lived there. I mean, I really did genuinely enjoy living in some of those places, but this sounds so cheesy, but they really didn't feel like home, um, to be, to be totally honest. And, um, there, there was a sense of coming back when I did come back to Cleveland of, of feeling like, oh yeah, this is home. Um, but the, in terms of the guilt, yeah, I think it's, um, it's it's so hard, I think, for uh, folks just trying to survive under this this system that makes it very very difficult to do that. Um, to think about uh, the energy it takes to create the kinds of worlds that I'm that I know that I trust that most people listening want want to see, um, including things like like better education, um, you know, forms of schooling that that feel that feel good and nourishing for for children. Um, that takes a lot of energy to, to change those conditions, right? Whether it's formally through, you know, formal mm-hmm. schools or, or, or in other alternative ways. Um, and people just don't have time and energy when, when they're, you know, working and, and all of the things. But I do, I, I will say that I am heartened, uh, having coming back to Cleveland and I'm, and I know this exists in Detroit as well, um, that there are, you know, there are some folks who are, and, and, I think it's, I'm, 
I don't, I don't mean to the person who commented as, as a parent, you know, I'm not trying to say that that person should have spent more energy, but I am saying there are people um, who, who are trying to find ways to, to build things, taking that sort of extra step of energy to, to, to build things here. Mm-hmm. And again, that's, that's very difficult to do with education. So I'm sort of veering away from that, this Twitter comment at this point, but um, some examples of, you know, this is this is small, but I, I'll give a shout out to to um, some friends who who started a, a compost um, organization, a co-op that, uh, you know, helped used to bike buckets to people's houses and people would put their compost in and they'd make soil out of it. Um, and now they're, you know, a, a much bigger worker owned cooperative. Um, they're called Rust Belt Riders. And this is such a small example, but it, it was just a group of people um, uh, who, who decided, you know, this is this is taking a little extra energy, but we're going to find ways to sort of build build something here and, and make it better. And I think, um, again, I'm, I'm this is a little bit of a rambling response, but I, I just I, I really empathize with the with the feeling like we need to leave. And then I also do feel heartened by the, the folks in the Rust Belt who I do see, um, you know, saying like, you know what, we're going to we're going to build this here. Yeah. Um, and I haven't necessarily done that, uh, having having moved back during the pandemic. But um, but I feel inspired by that. And yeah. um, and so I'm hopeful that that there will be less less desire to, to sort of flee because I think some really powerful things are being built here. Well, you know, I, 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 I think, um, you know, I, I talk a lot about the decision to move back to Detroit from the East Coast, uh, which now for me is 15 years ago. Um, uh, and what was important about that? And, and I said at the time that my work would be more important to me if I were doing it in Detroit, that, that it would mean more mm-hmm. to me to be doing the things that I can do here. But I also think it would mean more to Detroit than it could to any other city. In other words, that, that because I'm from here, because this is home in a way that no other place could really be, uh, I think the potential to, to influence what happens here is, is greater for me than it is in other places. And that's a tough thing to, to, to do and to say and to certainly to defend uh, even to family members who I think were scratching their heads a bit um, uh, when I did it. But, but I, I think you're right that we need more, we need more of us to think that way and, and to try. Mm-hmm. And it's not easy and there are lots of things you sacrifice doing it, but, uh, but there are also a lot of successes and there are a lot of things to celebrate about, uh, about that choice. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Uh, when we come back, we are going to continue this really great conversation with Rachel and Jolie about the idea of home. And we want to get going with you guys on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. Call and tell me about your Detroit love, about your Southeast Michigan love, about your Midwest love. Is it something that you feel is unrequited? Is it something that is difficult to express without feeling guilt or pain or recognizing pain? Uh, You can also go to Facebook or to Twitter, uh, put your comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. My guest this hour is Rachel Ann Jolie, a writer and author of Rust Belt Femme, which was a winner of the Independent Publisher Book Award in LGBTQ nonfiction and an NPR favorite book of 2020. We're talking about the love we have for places like Detroit and Southeast Michigan and other locales here in the old Rust Belt, uh, the way that love reflects sometimes uh, some pain that all of us have experienced being from these places and the question that it raises about that love. Is it unrequited? Is it the kind of thing that we ought to be asking ourselves about? Or is it the kind of thing that we should be celebrating more than we do? We want to hear from you, especially during uh, this program. Uh, give us a call and tell us about your relationship with Detroit or Metro Detroit or Michigan. Do you love this place? Have you always loved this place? Uh, do you hate this place? Is this a place where the pain that you've experienced partially because of the place that it is and the turmoil it's experienced, where that's just too much for you and uh, you'd rather be somewhere else? Uh, give us a call and let us know how you navigate all those emotions about uh, our fair city. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Uh, you can also go to social media, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation that way. So, uh, Rachel, before we get to the phones, which are starting to fill up, um, I want to talk just a little about the difficulty of uh, of, of navigating um, conflicting kinds of feelings about uh, about this. Um, um, so y you have dived fully into feminist literature, which means that you've had to sometimes criticize the same people that you love. And in some cases, that means working class men. I I'm really curious to hear you talk about how you navigate that space in a polarizing time uh, like this one, I think a lot of people love those who share the same values as them, but how do you express such strong criticism and love simultaneously for the, for the same people? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, that is, that is, that is a big question. And I think the, 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 the best answer that, that I can give is that, it's very clear to me that patriarchy harms men too, right? That these, the, the sort of toxic masculinity that, that I uh, witnessed more often than I would have liked um, in the communities where I grew up, but certainly also after, after I left those communities, I certainly don't want to suggest that toxic masculinity is only a product of working class communities, but uh, uh, you know, men, men of all, of all classes uh, can certainly exhibit that. Um, but that that's, that's also harmful to, to the men themselves, right? That, that these, these roles, this sort of um, 
the sort of traditional uh, strong provider who doesn't show his emotions and um, resorts to potentially violence in interpersonal relationships. You know, this um, this is this is not uh, a particularly humanizing or safe way to to be taught. Uh, you know, that uh, it's not a it's it's not a role that that. Um, uh, is is healing or or nourishing in in any way in the same ways that uh, that same sort of behavior also of course harms women and, and other genders. Yeah. Um, and so so I think that's that's a really big important thing for me to to always sit with um, as as an abolitionist as as a person who comes from these communities where sometimes it seems like that that this kind of toxic behavior seems like it's, it's more prevalent, although sometimes I just think it's less sort of hidden um, in some of these communities. Um, and so to, to, you know, as sort of cliche as this is and how much it also needs nuance, but to remember that hurt people hurt people, um, which doesn't, doesn't uh, resolve people of accountability or and certainly doesn't suggest that it's okay for, for things like any kind of abuse or, or interpersonal violence and in, in, uh, interpersonal relationships to happen. Um, it, it is saying that, uh, that these behaviors are a result of harmful systems more than of anything broken in particular types of, of men, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's, I think, really important to remember. Yeah, yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's start today with Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen. I want to say a couple things. The first one is I've traveled a lot, and when I come back to Detroit on the plane, and it's dark, and I see the lights, I always get that tingle in my stomach that I'm glad to be back home. (laughs) Okay, the other thing I wanted to say is if I was a person who didn't live in this country and wanted to have a view of what life was like, I wouldn't think of Detroit. I would think that uh, the United States only had uh, New York City, uh, maybe Washington, D.C., and California as, like, <laughs> California's one thing. <laughs> That's what I wanted to say. Yeah. <laughs> Bernadette, uh, you're not wrong. <laughs> um, and I think you've, you've actually put your finger on something pretty important, and this is something you, you deal with a little in the book, too, is that these are forgotten places. I mean, I think the dismissive term that we hear frequently for them um, is flyover states. And that's mm-hmm. not just, it's not just the Rust Belt. I mean, that that would include the, the, the plains and lots of other parts of America. But there's something particular about the forgetting, I think, of uh, this region that speaks to, I don't know, the cruelty of, uh, of deindustrialization and uh, of the going away of security and work and money and all of those things. And, and you know, yes, people from other countries think of the coasts because those are, those are kind of bright, shiny objects when you say the word America that come into your mind. Um, but but they, are, they are overlooking this place in a different way, I think, than you might overlook the South or or the, the, the bigger Midwest? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, 
it's such a, I mean, it's, it's, it just aligns with the sort of extractive, what can we get from you narrative of, of I think, the sort of normative discourse of, of, of the, quote, West and, and sort of industrialized nations. It's like um, once, once we stop providing or being productive for, for people, there's, there's sort of no use, um, no use to think, to think about us in the middle, mm-hmm. um, which is also interesting because that's changing as, as uh, you know, the climate crisis uh, exacerbates and, and we have fresh water. It's interesting to see people talk They're going to like us, us a lot soon, right? <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, but it is, it's just so extractive and it's like, well, people exist here regardless of, of how productive our industry is. Um, yeah. You know, there, there's, there's full lives being led here outside of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Bernadette, uh, really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Let's go next to Matt in Detroit. Matt, what's on your mind? Uh, good morning, Stephen. Hey, go ahead. Um, I was just going to say that um, in school during summer break, the group that I hung out with would go work at a different national park every summer. And they always wanted me to go. Mm-hmm. But I was a lifeguard at Parks and Rec, and I like my Parks and Rec job. <laughs> so I'm like, no, you know, I'm going to pass. I'm just going to stay, hang out here, you know. And they just never understood it. <laughs> and and do, you, do you ever feel like you missed out on something, Matt, by not going away? No, because later after I graduated, I worked for the city for 45 years. Uh-huh. But anyway, after I graduated, I got plenty of time to go out west. Been out yeah. many, many times. Yeah. I'm going yeah. in two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Matt, that's great. I'm, I'm really glad you called and, uh, and shared that experience with us. Okay, uh, next let's go to Aaron in Jefferson Chalmers. Aaron, welcome to the show. Good morning. I love the city of Detroit. I bought a home here. I live here. My love for the city is sometimes unrequited when it comes to the basic municipal services that I don't get from the city of Detroit that Mm -hmm. residents of other cities uh, take for granted. Um, But I do have a love, feel a love, from the the people of the city, and particularly the people in my neighborhood, the people who have lived here much longer than I have. They love me. They respect me. I was in a car wreck as of late, and they saw me walking around and called me and said, we are so glad to see you back. And Mm -hmm. the the love from the the people of the city is what makes me want to live in Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aaron, I, I, I love what you're saying in this uh, in this phone call. And I, and I think that's a really important distinction to draw. So much of what we talk about when we talk about the ways we love Detroit is is about the people. Right. It, it, it really is about um, the relationships that we have uh, that that frame uh, our existence in the city. And and that gets kind of. I don't know, maybe glossed over when we talk about the relationship with the city itself and things like you're saying, like with the municipal services and uh, other insufficiencies. But but there is that bond, I think we all feel with each other about our love for the place, which should make us love each other more than we do and should make us 
more protective of each other, I think. But but it exists, and it's it's a powerful part of of, of who we are. Uh, Rachel, I wonder what your your reaction is to Aaron. Yeah, I mean, I'm just aggressively nodding <laughs> because I really <laughs> I really feel similarly about Cleveland, and and I don't want to um, you know uh, uh, to- completely romanticize us as totally different from any other place in the country because I I do you know I've sensed camaraderie and in other cities that I've lived in. Um, but I will say that it felt stronger here and in Chicago than, um, than some other places I've lived that I've mentioned. Um, and, uh, yeah, and there's, uh, and part of it is, I mean, people do leave, but the people who, but there's less people that come in. So for example, um, in Boston, there was so many transient folks and it was funny because a lot of my closest friends in Boston were people who had moved from the Midwest. So mm. it was like we found each other. <laughs> right. um, but but, you know, when you're when you're in a place like Cleveland and I'm assuming Detroit, too, so many people have been there for so long. So you find people who are really rooted in ways that I think um, really makes a difference. And, and yeah, there is a, there's a sense of even this is so this is so silly and simple, but um walking down the street and people smiling and saying hello isn't the norm everywhere. And no, it, and not. it, and it is where I, I live, I live in Cleveland Heights specifically. And, um, it was so delightful to, to experience that again after, uh, you know, and it's almost like I didn't even notice it necessarily when I didn't have it, but I definitely noticed it when I came back. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this really delightful conversation with Rachel Angeli. We'll also continue to hear from you on social media and on the phones. Dennis and Dearborn, Yvonne in Detroit. We will get to you first when we come back. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. And as always, go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there, and we can include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Rachel Angeli, a writer and author of Rust Belt Femme, which is a winner of the Independent Publisher Book Award in LGBTQ nonfiction and an NPR favorite book of 2020. We're talking about the cities we live in and love, the cities that we're from, and how and why we love them. We want to hear from you this hour about how you feel about Detroit or Metro Detroit, or Michigan, are you from here and feel like this place is just an ingrained part of your identity? Uh, What does that identity look like? Is it all about celebration and joy, or does it have significant dimensions of struggle and suffering? We want to hear what your relationship is like now with the city of Detroit as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media, put comments there, and we'll include you in the show that way. Let's go next to Yvonne in Detroit. Yvonne, welcome to the show. Hey, Yvonne hey. Friday here. Happy to be here. Yes, thanks, thanks for coming. I love Detroit. I am a product of Detroit. There is no, there's sadness, but 
I'm not blaming everybody for that. I was born at Hutzel Hospital by Charles Wright, and we all know what he delivered to our mm-hmm. city. Mm-hmm. I got a top-notch education at all my schools. I tested out of things I needed, went to Wayne State undergrad, and then ended up at med school at U of M. First mm-hmm. person in my family to get a ed- uh, higher education. And by that, a lot of people followed me. Also part of my lineage my, was my music. You know, during that time, Baby Boomers, we had top-notch musical education. (laughs) George Shirley came to my high school and taught us, and I ended up singing with Michigan Opera Theater, still singing with them in the chorus for the last 30 years with all the great singers of the world. Dr. DiChiara was one of the reasons why Detroit downtown revitalized. When we started into our new opera house home, Mm -hmm. it just turned the whole area around. So I have sung with the best. I am now still at Children's Hospital of Michigan as a pediatrician. I'm the division chief for medical for adolescent medicine and general peds. I am the director of medical education. So now is my time to pay for it. I wow. must ensure that people understand how great we are, what joy there is in providing um, medical services to our children so they can get to school and do better than the rest of the the what people expected them to do. So music, medicine, my family, my community, (laughs) I understand that we have weaknesses. But if we don't come back and use all the greatness that was poured into us and extend it out to the next group, then we have not done our job. That's what I want to say. Yvonne, great call. Uh, Mm -hmm. But but you had me at, uh, you were born at Hutzel, uh, and delivered by Dr. Charles Wright, uh, because that, that, that is such a mark of a certain era here in Detroit. Of course, that's where I was born, and that's who delivered me. And, of, you know, of course, they, we have this wonderful museum uh, with his name that celebrates African-American history here in the, in the city. And you, all you have to do is say that, and there's this instant bond with thousands and thousands and thousands of, of other Detroiters. It's such a great example of, of what we're talking about. Uh, uh, Rachel Angeli, this also, I think, uh, points to that, that pride and that celebration that, that, that I was talking about earlier that is such a big part of what you're writing about here. And, and as Yvonne said, you know, everything's not perfect and, and there's a lot of work to do, but we're from a place where we had really great uh, experiences as well and really big opportunities to go on and make this place better for the next people who come along. Absolutely. Yeah, Yvonne, that was so, so inspiring. I want, I want her as my motivational speaker every day. <laughs> you know, get me out of bed. Um, that, yeah, absolutely. And I love that notion of um, you just say one thing and there's that connection. And, you know, we'll, we'll all have multiple and different examples of that. But yes. um, it's, it's a really beautiful thing to be like, oh, yeah, me too. And, and you, don't, you don't get that unless, unless you're, you're talking to people from, from your hometown in the same way. So, yeah. 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 And, and, you know, Yvonne said she's a boomer, which means she's a little older than I am. I'm, I'm Gen X, but that shows how long those cultural references uh, existed here in the city. This idea of being yeah. born at that hospital delivered by, uh, you know, the obstetrician who, who treated, I don't know, I don't know how much of the African-American community. It seems like every, every yeah. woman in the city had their baby delivered by, by yeah. Charles Wright. Yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah. Yvonne, again, thanks so much for, for the call and the comments. Uh, let's go to Dennis 
in Dearborn. Dennis, what's on your mind? Hi, good good morning. Uh, I love Detroit. I'm a Brightmore kid, and I'm proud of it. I'm 74. Um, you know, myth sometimes feeds uh, nostalgia, but I think facts do more. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I'm going to I'm going to kind of give a sociological view. Um, Brightmore had everything that it needed. Um, it had uh, a tailor. Uh, department stores, it had a theater, it had everything up and down because it was invested in by government. We had good schools and and everything. So the infrastructure was there. Uh, However, now in my family, there are are people who say they escaped from Brightmore. Mm -hmm. And my point is I was formed by Brightmore, and it was because of the sociological uh, buildup of it. In World War II, they gave housing permits that allowed poor housing, and they stuck, and they formed it for years. But we overcame that, and that was all formed, and, and it allowed uh, greatness to happen. So I, if I could, I'm old now, and I have to not live there, but I, I would live, I would move back to Brightmore if it was right in a minute. Yeah. Uh, Dennis, I love that phrase, that you didn't escape Brightmore, you were formed by it, and I think that's exactly what we're what we're talking about here is that <clears throat> that distinction between fleeing things, even things that were difficult or um, or scarred us, uh, and and acknowledging that they just are part of who we are, and and we can go on to other things, but still maintain that connection. Uh, Rachel, mm-hmm. Rachel, go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, I just I just agree with that, and. Um... Yeah, there's a, I think you said it. I don't know that there's much more for me to say. I think, I think that's right. And I also appreciated that, that idea that, um, that Dennis shared about, uh, both myth and fact feeding nostalgia. And I think, uh, that was something I wrestled with when writing the book was, was trying not to romanticize things. Also, you know, grappling, grappling with the things that were really hard, but, um, both of those, both of those things coexisting, right? It's sort of our rose colored, um, images and memories uh, coupled with the reality, but but those all ultimately um, making us who we are. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to talk just a little about the way you you discuss segregation and race uh, in the book, which is of course uh, th- those are both really powerful dynamics in the Midwest uh, and and including where you grew up. Um, uh, you describe though an appreciation for. Cleveland Heights, and that's not a place that most of our listeners will will be familiar with. But but I, I would love for you to talk about that city and why you're drawn to it, um, and why you're drawn to a specific place in it. Yeah, I, I I I'm always willing to be corrected on this, and and so far nobody's really pushed back. So I think this analysis <laughs> seems right. Um, and I, I mean, I've looked at, at the data <clears> that Cleveland Heights is, it's, it's almost exactly 50% white and 50% black. And that's not a perfect number. And, and there's, you know, of course, other races that live here, but it's, it's almost, it's almost 50, 50, mm-hmm. um, and, and integrated in a way that, that is very different from other cities that I've lived in where that might, that data still might be the same, but you won't, you won't see, you know, it'll be like the white block and the not white block. And, and it's, it's very, very clear. Um, so, and I noticed that ever since I was a kid. So I grew up in an extremely white 
um, you know, that rural rural area was very, very white. Um, although it, it's it's interesting, I actually had a black pediatrician. So when you were talking about about the, <laughs> the, the black doctor, I was like, that was that was the the, the, the one black person I knew when I was very young. <laughs> right. um, and um, and but then when I would visit, uh, my uncle lives on the east side of Cleveland, which is where Cleveland Heights is. And when I would come in and visit him, you know, I got to see actual actual diversity. Um, and also uh, econ- economic diversity in a way that uh, is is not great because it's not okay that there are people that uh, living in that are living in really poor conditions in in Cleveland Heights alongside mansions that also exist in this city. Um, but there is this way in which gentrification hasn't taken place in the same way that I've seen it take place in hmm. pretty much every other city I've lived in. And I'm not trying to give Cleveland Heights a pass. There's still extreme inequality and, and all of the things. I'm not trying to paint an idyllic picture of it. But I do think it's unique to other places that I've lived where there is this coexisting of class and race um, in ways that feels somehow more sustainable because it's hmm. been it, it felt like that when I came here as a child, and 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 it feels like that now. Um, and again, very open to, to you know hearing different perspectives of that, especially from some you know not white folks. But um, that's that's very much how how it feels. And um, again, I don't I don't want there to exist any any economic inequality um, at all. But the fact that uh, somehow people haven't been pushed out as aggressively yeah. um, feels significant. And and I'm not yeah. So that's. That's that's so, an observation. So we've only got like uh, about a minute and a half left, but but I wonder if you can talk about why you think that's true. And there is some history in Cleveland Heights, I think that that helps answer that question. This is not a new phenomenon there. I mean, I, I I've known people from Cleveland Heights who have said the same thing to me over a really long period of time. So what is it? What are some of the what are some of the ingredients, I guess, for that? Yeah, I mean. Part of it is maybe is um, housing costs here somehow managed to stay relatively low, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also a thing that I think means uh, this part of the country isn't going to be invisible forever because people are, are being, being driven out of more expensive places. Um, it's possible that it's also because it's surrounded by um, some colleges and universities, which always means there's like a little more just sort of a mix of people because of, you know, sort of maybe student populations. Um, and yeah, so I think uh, I should, I should, I should certainly probably have a more informed answer, but, but those are a couple of things that I think that I think are probably likely. Um, it's close to downtown Cleveland in a way that I think uh, means that lots of different types of people close to the hospital. So it's also, you know, sort of uniquely positioned for, for people who are going to different kinds of jobs. Um, and so, yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's, and I think also Cleveland Heights is very proud of itself for also having, having a lot of, um, you know, the, you know, from indie movie theaters to Mm -hmm. soul food restaurants to, I think there's sort of a sense of pride in that sort of eclectic, um, thing that, that maybe draws people from different cultural backgrounds, potentially. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Rachel Angeli, it was really great to have you here for this conversation and, to talk about this uh, this wonderful book you've written about uh, the place that we're all from. Thanks so much for joining thank, us on Detroit today. Thank you. It was really really a pleasure. Great to great to be um, anchored in a conversation about place in this way that really really hasn't necessarily been the case as much. So great great to be with a bunch of Detroiters and Rust yeah. Belters. Thank you. Yeah, no, it was great having you. 
Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Tune in tomorrow when we'll be talking with Governor Whitmer after her fourth State of the State address. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.